Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful evening and wonderful day you've given us. We ask you to bless this time as we start the book of Joshua, that you will guide and lead and show us what you'd have us to see from this great story of victory and conquest of the promised land and, and just your might and authority shown. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the book of Joshua, as far as a outline overview like we do on new books, which we don't do very often, but <laughs> because we don't do new books that often, but the book of Joshua is written by, we don't know who for sure, but most people believe that it's Joshua, uh, which I will accept that it's written by Joshua. That's not Moses. Definitely not Moses. Uh, it's it's in the same it's in the same uh, line that of the Pentateuch the very last chapter was probably not written by by Joshua seems how it's all about his death so it's probably not written by the last chapter isn't uh, there's nothing in the book that tells us for sure that it's written by Joshua but traditionally it is attributed to Joshua uh, we just want to cover that because if you hear somebody ever tell you it's not written by Joshua they might be right. <laughs> Definitely wasn't Moses that wrote it. Moses is dead. And Moses is dead and buried in some place in Moab. Nobody knows where his grave's at. So, God knows. So, well, God buried him, so he knows. Okay, the book of the book of Joshua is all about the successful conquest of the Promised Land, and that's what it's all about from the beginning to end. It's all about the conquest of the Promised Land. And at the very end, the division of the promised land. So we're going we're gonna to see pictures of victory all through this book. Uh, the whole story of the promised land is actually, a pro uh, for us, it's a picture of spiritual victory and prosperity and spiritual life. They have re they've left the wilderness experience where everything is dry and barren and they've entered into the promised land. Some people will teach you that it's a picture of heaven. No, it's not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of spiritual success and prosperity, which is where God wants us living. And as Christians, and too many times, we live in the wilderness, and we just like going through hard times with God instead of through the victorious times with God. Spiritual success and prosperity define the way we're going to define define it here and prosperity does not necessarily mean great wealth uh, as we're going to see in this in this chapter it literally is more about um, seeing things from God's side being successful in our life not just in in money and wealth and true prosperity is just that the the joy peace uh, of God living through us and and having his seeing his victory in our life, which may mean that we've gone through some very hard things, and yet that can be very prosperous for us spiritually. The, the book is divided up in, into several sections, and it is a book of history. Okay, this is a book of history. It is going to just go battle after battle after battle, and conquering after conquering. The first five chapters are going to be Israel coming into the promised land, crossing, crossing the Jordan and coming into the promised land. In chapter 6, we have the Battle of Jericho, which is a very well-known story by most. In, if you've ever gone to Sunday school or anything, you know the Battle of Jericho because that's taught in Sunday school. Or at least you think you know the Battle of Jericho, and, and we may learn some things as we kind of go through that. 
Chapter 7 and 8 is the Battle of Ai. Now, Ai is a very small town compared to Jericho, and it is the only defeat that Israel takes in the book of Joshua. And that is because they don't talk to God and don't ask God's permission to go into battle. They just say, okay, we conquered Jericho. We can take this little city. And they forget to talk to God and end up getting beat. Well, it's because of Achan's sin, but if they had talked to God, then God would have told them, no, you're not going up until you've dealt with the sin, sin in the camp. Right. Uh, but because they didn't talk to God, they didn't know there was sin in the camp, and they went up and they got, and they got their butts kicked. <laughs> and so that's what 7 and 8 is all about. Uh, chapter 10 will be the conquest of the southern part of the, of the promised land. Uh, chapter 11 and 12 will be the conquest of the north, and a whole long list of the kings destroyed in the promised land. It'll be a wonderful fun, fun day for me to read all those kings and, and those wonderful names. And we'll, we'll, get somebody else, we'll get somebody else to read that day. Oh no. What was nine again? Nine in my, was skipped in my outline, but it basically is probably the conquest of the South. Uh, chapters 13 through 22 are all about the division of the land. What tribe gets what? and what their boundary markers are. And uh, very long, very hard section to read when you're reading through it because it talks about places most of us don't have a clue where they're at. I will try to get us a good map by then for, so we'll be able to look at a map and say, okay, here's the borders that they're talking about. Uh, because, in, because they literally go, it goes from this mountain down this valley to, to this place. And that is the way they used to measure out properties before we learned how to use our scopes and everything and, and, and GPSs and everything. Now, now when you get a piece of property, they tell you exactly where your property stops and, and starts. Before it used to be, uh, I own everything from the river to, the, to this hill over here. And if the river changed positions, you might have gained or lost land, <laughs> depending on which way the river went. <laughs> and so uh, we go through that and then the last two chapters, 23 and 24, will be Joshua's farewell to the people and his death. Not near as long as Moses' farewell to the people, which was the entire book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> okay, remember when we went through Deuteronomy, I said this was Moses' last farewell. It just took him a couple of days to go through the whole book, and we took over a year to go through the, through the whole book, and he delivered the message to them in, in, day, in a couple of days. So Joshua's farewell is just, a, it's just uh, two chapters. <laughs> so that's the outline of the book, and it's all, it is going to literally be a book of successes and prosperity in most cases, other than the battle of Ai, which God put, basically uses to show us that if we disobey God and we have sin in our church, in our family, then discipline will come to the entire church, family, whatever it might be. And this is something we've got to keep in remembrance. Our country, if we have righteous leaders, gets blessed as a country. If we have unrighteous leaders, and the people are unrighteous, as we are becoming very unrighteous, the country will suffer punishment for the sin in the country. If a church has sin in the church, there will be punishment for the church. And we see that over and over in the scripture. 
when Israel had a good king or a good leader, they were blessed. If they had a bad king or bad leader, they had discipline that came their way. And sometimes people influence their leaders. Sometimes the leaders are totally in, uninfluenced by their people. But sin in the camp must be judged. Yes, Anna, you have a question you want to ask. I see the look. And it's true even in families that families go through the same thing. If there's if the, being led wrong or have sin being accepted in a family, there will be judgment to a family just because that's what God does with leaders. He expects leaders to lead. And leaders are supposed to deal with sin and bad things in the area that they lead in. And so we're going to see Joshua is going to be a very good leader for the most part. Uh, we're going to see him taking, taking the reins of Israel. And we're, we're going to see him being nervous at first about it, which is normal. Anybody who's not nervous when they're given a big assignment is either overly confident of themselves or a total fool. And, and believe me, I've seen this. Every time I put somebody in charge, I expect them to be a little nervous, to be the one in charge. And if you're not, then there's a problem. And Joshua's going to have that nervousness. He's been, he's been, he's being given the reins of about three and a half million people. Okay, he's been Moses' right hand man. He's been in charge of the army. The army's about six hundred thousand men strong. You know, between six hundred to seven hundred thousand men strong. So he's been taking responsibility. But all of a sudden, he's going to be given responsibility for about three and a half million people who are, are the most obedient people we've ever seen. And if you believe that, you haven't been paying any attention to the last four, you know, last four books. <laughs> yes, these are the same people that were with Moses. Yes. Yeah, they were, they were really obedient, really good people. You know, and, and all of a sudden, Mo, Joseph is being given, Joseph, Joshua is being given charge of all those, all, those, all those wonderful people. And they're going to do the same thing they did with Moses. They're going to promise to be obedient. They're pro going to promise to, keep, to do everything they're told. And we're going to watch them not do what they're told. Now, they, one thing about the book of Joshua is they tend to be more obedient in this book because they are taking their own land. And there's a little more obedience in them. And they're not hungry all the time because they're in the promised land. They're, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's... And uh, so there's lots of food, a great variety of food, and they're not wandering from place to place as much. They're just going into battles and settle, settling the land. So they're not quite as disobedient. They're not quite as grumpy. They're not quite as complaining because they're in the promised land now. They finally reached the promised land. And remember, they get there by grace. They don't deserve it. All right, 40 years before this time, the, their father said, well, we, you know, we're afraid of the people. We can't take the land, and they'll, they'll kill our children. And God said, fine, then you all will die in the wilderness, and your children will go take the land. The very ones you said were going to die, we'll let them take the land. And they go into the land, and they've been just as disobedient as their fathers were, other than the fact that they are willing to go into the promised land. All right, so we're going to look at this now. Chapter 1, Joshua, unless anybody has any questions about the overview of the book. All right, Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua's minister, saying, 
Joseph, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and this people, unto the land which I do give them, even unto the children of Israel. Every place that the foot of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given you unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon over even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and, the, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be you strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein for then you shall make your way prosperous and then shall you shall have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Be not afraid, neither be you dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All right, so we're going to look at this command from God to jo uh, Joshua. First, it starts out with, as we said, this is a history book. It's transitioning from the law to the history, and it tells us where we're at in the history. Moses is dead. <laughs> Pretty simple, Moses is dead, and Joshua, the son of Nun, is being given command. And uh, you know, how would you like to have be called the son of Nun? <laughs> you know, it isn't literally Nun, but you know, N-U-N, you know, but every time you say it, I, I always think, you know, oh, he had no parents, you know, and that's a joke out there, you know, and one of the Christian jokes, you know, who had no parents, Joshua, son of Nun, you know, it's, uh, but you know, his, his, he is given the charge of this large group of people. And remember, right now, we've left them in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, just to the east side of the Jordan, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And they've conquered all their different countries on that southern, southern side, then up to the, up the eastern side of the Jordan. They, they've had nothing but victories, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And this is what's happening, and it says, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people of the land, unto the land which I do give them even to the children of Israel. Arise, cross the river. Now if you know anything about history and, and battle, rivers were always a defensible place. If you liked having a river, it gave you water and it gave you something that kept your enemy away from you. Especially a body of water similar to the Jordan. It was not something that you just forded across. It was a very deep waterway at places and fairly wide in some places. It's very much like the Mississippi River in our, in our country. In the early days of our country, we went to the Mississippi River and the Mississippi River made a great natural boundary. You could not ford across the Mississippi. You had to build a bridge or, or take boats. And so the River Jordan is one of these rivers. The, People of Jericho have been seeing the, the camped Israelites over there for a couple months now. They've been camped over on the other side of the river. And they've got a river. And we're going to find out that the river is at flood stage right now. The, 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 when, and when we get there, the people of Jericho are pretty confident that Israel's not coming over for a while. They feel that they've got months before 
Israel is going to be able to come across, and we're going to see a miraculous crossing here, very you know in this book. But you know they're very comfortable. Okay, well we've got the river at flood stage. It's going to be it's going to be weeks to a month or so before they could even think about crossing the river, because it's it's flooding. It's at it's over its banks. It's it's not it's a good protection right now, and they're feeling confident. And God is saying, okay, it's time for you to go over. And I can almost picture Joshua looking at this and thinking, uh, God, are you a little insane? You know, it's at flood stage. How are we crossing this river? We've been, staying, we've been over here for a month, you know, and we could have crossed over the river at any time, and now it's at flood. And you're, and you're saying it's time to go. You know, he probably didn't say it, but in the back of his mind, he was, you're probably thinking, you know, this has got to be, you know, this has got to be insane. And then when he gets the battle plan for Jericho, he really thinks God's insane, you know. I just want you to march around the, <laughs> march around the city a few times. Yeah. Uh, you know, how many times does God tell us to do things that make no sense to us in the flesh? Funny. <laughs> most of the time, most of the time he'll tell us to, to do things that make no sense. I want you to go talk to that person who's scary looking and, and it's just a person you wouldn't talk to in your, in your flesh. I want you to teach a Bible study, and, I, and, you, and you're quaking in your, in your boots, and your knees are knocking together. I don't want to do that, God. He, he says, I want you to do this or that. And so often it makes no sense to, to us in our physical being. And that is when it comes to, do, God, do I trust you? Am I going to do what you tell me to do? And too often we look at it and say, God, it's impossible. Of course it's impossible. It wouldn't be God's plan if it was possible by us. It's always, when God tells you to do something, it is going to be something that is impossible for you to do in the flesh. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a God-sized plan that he's telling you to do. Now, he'll break that, that steps down a lot of times to make them easier. You know, and this is very important. You know, maybe he's going to tell you to be able to jump the Grand Canyon, but he's not going to tell you to do it from the very beginning. He's going to start having you jump ditches, you know, little, little, little ones. <laughs> okay, and I'm you know, being a little facetious there, but this is what God does is he, he brings us step by step to be able to do whatever it is he's asked us, asking us to do. He doesn't tell you, okay, I want to make you a great preacher like Billy Graham. You're going to preach in front of millions of people and your very first per time you go out and you go and preach for millions of people is not what he does. He starts out, you teach a small Sunday school class. You teach a small home Bible study class. And you slowly start gaining the skills to be able to have the confidence to stand in front of a large group. And, you know, it is kind of a nerve-wracking thing when you stand in front of a large enough group. Most people will tell you that the thing they fear the most is having to speak in front of people. And that then when they say that, they're talking six people or more. Okay? Uh, Unless they're two-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, God can work you up to where you're starting to teach larger and larger groups. And the largest group I've ever been in front of was 1,500, and we were singing as a family in front of them. And I was nervous, and I, I swear Mike was in the, in the air with no hands a few times because... I don't remember actually touching it on some of the transfers. The largest group I've ever spoken in front of is about 600. But, you know, so it, it takes time to learn these skills. Now, the first group I talked to was in front of a bunch of Sunday school kids. Uh, there's only about eight or nine of them. 
And that was my class. Yeah, <laughs> that would be scary. Some people that would be terrifying for. Uh, <laughs> but we, we learn. We learn to be able to do what it is that God's going to do. And he'll give us the grace to do it, and he'll keep working with us on this. And he says, I'm sending you over. It's time to go over this Jordan into the land which I do give you. And this is the important verse that God gives us. How many times have you done something that God has told you to do? And you, it's God that does the work. It, it's so much fun doing what God tells you to do because it's him, doing, it's him that's going to give you the victory. It's his, the Holy Spirit that's going to speak through you. It's God that does everything about it. You know, it's terrifying at first. And if you think it's you going to do it, it's really terrifying. But if you start really coming down and saying, God, it's going to be you. We've been teaching evangelism, and how hard is it to go out and speak to those first couple people? You know, you, you've never, you're doing something you've never done before, and it's scary at first. And then you start watching God be the one that speaks for you, and, get, and watch God be the one delivering the message, and doing what it is that you're supposed to do. And so we see this, and then in verse 3 it says, Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Now this promise should sound a little familiar. God is repeating a promise that he has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everywhere that your foot touches belongs to you. Okay? This is a promise that he's given to all the, all the founding fathers, and now he's given it to Joshua. And this is something most people never bring out. Joshua was given the same problem that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given. And you, and you look at the borders that he's giving you. Where did, where did Abraham start out at? Ur of Chaldees. He walked along the westward along the Euphrates, and that's going to be one of their borders, the Euphrates. Then he came down through, through the north part of it, and all that land belongs to him because he stood on it. He stepped on it. Jacob steps on it. Uh, to go back and get you know, his wife and then he comes back and touches on it. And all the places they wandered all over the promised land. And God says everywhere that your foot has touched is going to be yours. And then the greater promise is that the Messiah, when he comes and rules the world, he's going to rule the whole world from Israel. So when Jesus comes back in the millennial kingdom, he will rule the entire world from Israel. And that is the completion of the promises that God has given to them. And so we're going to see this whole land. And the only time Israel ever owns all their land in history has been when Solomon reigned. David conquered most of it and Solomon added more to it and they conquered and Solomon controlled from the Euphrates River all the way to the Mediterranean, all the way down to Egypt and all the way back across Saudi Arabia. He was the, the only time they've ever owned all their, all their land was during that period of time. Since then, it's been broken up and, and lost. But when Jesus comes, they will rule the whole world because he will rule the whole world in, in victory. So we see this. He goes, and then in, in verse 4, we see this definition. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, so this is the area they're on. They're on just, just east of the Jordan, so all of that area unto the great river, and when you read great river, you'll see the next sentence usually says the river Euphrates. And if it doesn't, they're still referring to the Euphrates. Okay, the Euphrates is that big river 
on the north side of, of that land. It's also called in history the cradle of civilization. It is where uh, Adam and, uh, excuse me, Noah's children eventually settled in that area as they came off the ark and they left the mountains and came down into the valley and they settled in that area and that is where history starts. And there's no argument that history starts there. History will tell you that it starts there. It's where mankind's history starts at. And it really starts with, as far as historical references, Nimrod's period of time and the Tower of Babel and the building of the first cities and the first king of the, of the world was Nimrod. Okay, so he's saying, okay, you're going to have all the way up there, <laughs> all the way up to the river. You're not going to go across the river into Babylon because Babylon always represents the world and, and, and Satan's kingdom. And it is an opposition. As you read through the scriptures, God says, I, my seat is in Jerusalem, and Satan's seat seems to be in Babylon. Everything we read, Babylon is always that negative place. And there's a lot of people that read Revelation, and it talks about Babylon, and they try to say it's going to be Rome. And I don't believe that. I believe it's going to be Babylon, right, where Satan wants to set his kingdom up, and not Rome. And that's just my personal belief. I believe that it says Bab Babylon, and it means Babylon. It's not figurative as far as I'm concerned. And that takes me back into what I've always told you. If the Bible makes sense and it's what it says, you accept it for what it says. Unless it's very clear that it's talking in symbols, it means what it says. And when he says that Babylon is going to rise up and be the center of all of the commerce and, and everything, I believe it means Babylon will rise up and be the center of all the Antichrist's rule. And basically it's the opposition to Jerusalem. God says, Jerusalem is my, my seed. It's where he has chosen to place his name and Babylon appears to be where Satan has chosen to place his name. And it starts going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Um, that is where it's centered out of, yes. Um, so it says, you've gone all the way to the great rivers, all the land of the Hittites, which is that promised land, unto the great sea. And the great sea always refers to the Mediterranean. And uh, the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. So Israel has been promised a land by God. And God says, this is how big it is. Now, we see in our day and age that Israel does not have very much of their land. Not very much of it at all. And we have the UN and all the different nations trying to take what little land they have away from them. All right, so we're looking at this. They're supposed to have all of this land by God's giving it to them. And the world, Satan in control of the world, is trying to take away even what little land that they have and trying to keep them from possessing their land. Now the funny thing is, when Israel was given their land in 1948, there was no signed treaty giving them their land. It was just decided by England, basically England, that they were going to give them land that they owned in that area, and this was going to be the country of Israel. Israel has a signed document from almost World War I that gives them all their land, but it has never been enforced. The only signed treaty gives them much more land than they have, and people are fighting and arguing over how much land they're supposed to have. And so, but God says, this is what I'm giving them. 
I'm going to give them all their land. And we're going to see that they never quite conquer all their land. In all the lifetime of Joshua, they never conquered their land. But he finally releases the two and a half tribes to go back because they've been fighting for all of Joshua's life. And he says, okay, these other tribes aren't trying to get their land. You go ahead and go back home. Everybody's done fighting. They're settling in their borders. You can go back home. And so we're going to see that even though God says all of this land is yours, they never take it. And again, they never take all their land until Solomon's day. And David takes most of it. Solomon wins just a little bit of it because he's not really a man of war. He's a man of peace. But he out-negotiates most everybody to take the rest of their land and make them vassals. But we want to just, the reason we bring this up is Israel has been promised a land and it's much larger than what they own. Which is why there are many people that believe that Israel does not really have their land and not by God's standards and they don't know that what, what they have is, is proper. Because they look at it as man-made and not what God has promised. And there is some truth to that. They don't have everything they're supposed to and it is just a man-made, man-made thing. But they do have their land and they do have a nation. And God is calling them back home. Jews all over the world want to go to Israel. And even those from America, if you talk to especially Orthodox Jews, most of them want to go to Israel. They may never go to it because they're, they're pretty happy with the life they have here, but they have this great desire for Israel. It's almost like God put a homing sense in them that says, Israel's home, go back home. And in places where they're persecuted, they really want to go to, go to Israel. It's, it's an easy th- decision for them to go to Israel. But for the most part, the Jews want to go back home because that's what God has put in their heart. I've been reading Daniel, I mean, Daniel and Ezekiel. God said they would have a longing to go home. Yeah, and that's what God promised, that they would have that longing. And they do. They have a longing to go back home. Uh, for whatever reason, even though it's not home for many of them. Many of them have never lived there, never thought about living there, but they are having this longing to go to Israel. Especially as anti-Semitism starts really raising up its head again, more and more of them want to go to a place that is home, where we can be Jews and, and everybody will accept us. Now, even though they don't accept them all around them, they're trying to destroy them, but it's still a country where it is home. And most of them, many of them want to go there. Verse 5, and you shall, there shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. What a promise. Joshua, everywhere you go, you will be successful. You will not lose battles. I will not fail you nor forsake you. You realize that that's God's promise to us. We, we were... Annie commented on the way up here to, you know, today and we were talking about how much do we try to do wrong and then try to justify it before God and try to twist it. <laughs> you know, okay, God, I, I really messed up. Now let's, let's see how you're going to bless this, God. And we do this all the time. You know, we make decisions sometimes on purpose. We say, God, I just don't think you're, I just don't trust you, God. I don't think you, I don't think you have all the right answers, God. I'm going to do it my way. We fall flat on our face, get our skin knees and go, God, you know, okay, I think maybe you were right. How, 
you know, how can we get, how can we make this right? You know, it's a whole lot easier to do things right than to try to fix them after the fact. Can we fix them after the fact? We can't, but God can. God redeems the lost time for us. He will redeem our mistakes with our families. He will redeem our mistakes that we make within our lives, and he will turn things to good. Now, does that mean it was the perfect plan? No, it's not usually the perfect plan. It is much easier and better to do things right than to go, okay, God, now how do I fix this problem? It is easier to stay in the marriage when God says don't get divorced than to get divorced and get remarried and have all the same problems all over again. All right? Uh, you know, most people sit, run from their problems and then realize it was the wrong decision to do. We've got people who move hundreds and thousands of miles to try to run from their problems and then realize they were the problem in the first place because they bring their problems with them. Uh, one of the things that have been told is that there's pastors who will spend two, three to four years in a church and things start getting difficult. They'll go to another church. All of a sudden, they'll get a call to go to another church. And three or five years down the road, they have the same problems that they had at the previous church. So they, rather than deal with the fact that they're the ones bringing their problems with them, they get a call to another church. And maybe after three or four churches, they'll either leave the ministry or they'll realize they've got to grow. They've got to grow and, and correct what's going on. This is something that not just pastors have a problem with. All of us have this problem. We bring our own problems into the things we do. And that's why we're told that our flesh needs to be crucified. I cannot discipline my flesh and hope to get away with it. I might be able to discipline my flesh for a period of time. But eventually, it's going to roar out and say, I want out. Just like animals, when the animals are being tamed, quote-unquote wild beasts are tamed, you have lion tamers who have raised their, their lions and tigers and whatever you know, from young, young cubs, and they're generally friendly with them, but they are wild animals, and given the opportunity, will act like a wild animal. Siegfried and Roy, I can't remember which one of them was in there at the time, Forgot that he was playing with with wild animals, and lost his you know his concentration for just a moment, and was attacked by one of his beloved cats, and mauled pretty good. Why? Because he forgot that he was dealing with something that was wild. If we try to discipline our flesh, put it in a cage, and not let it be crucified, eventually it will come out and try to maul us, okay? That is why the scriptures tell us that the flesh must be crucified. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the faith that I live, now, I, now the life I now live, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ. Crucified flesh, flesh that has been destroyed by God and replaced by him is what he is looking for. And we're going to see this in this scripture. When Joshua is following God with all of his heart, the people are following him, they are victorious. The one event where he forgets God, they take their defeat and embolden the enemy in that process. And so we want to be able to look at this. God does not fail us. 
and he will not forsake us. Now, if we walk away from him and try to do our own thing, he still doesn't forsake us, but he says, okay, you want to you walk over there in the, in the briar patch and get all the stickers and everything and the scrapes and the scratches? You go be my guest. I'll stay, I'll stay, here, on the, I'll stay here on the path. I'll wait for you to get done. I'll wait for you to get done playing in the blackberry blackberry briars, and 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 then when you come back all scraped up, I'll I'll put the oil and and salve on your scratches. But he doesn't forsake us. Now, if we really want to do the wrong things, he will let us do the wrong things, and he'll be ready for us when we come back with open arms, to help fix it up, and. We come back with our tail between our legs and going, okay, I really messed up, God. Can you forgive me? And he goes, yeah, I, I, I forgive you. We need to learn then to forgive ourselves. You know, it's really sad to me when I, when I look at people who will not forgive themselves for the things they've done wrong. Because God has already forgiven you. Don't live in the wilderness of unforgiveness and, and struggle. Say, God, I'm going to accept you that you forgive me, and, I want, and I'm going to accept that I am forgiven, and I'm going to forgive myself. Because I have seen it too many times where people beat themselves up. God has forgiven them and they are just wallowing in their past. Do not wallow in the past. Get over the past. The past is under the blood. The past is forgiven. Walk in the victory that, of the now. Because you can't change the past. It's gone. Why are people depressed so often and sad so often? It's because they're looking back in the past and saying, God, I made so many mistakes. And God says, yeah, I know that, but you're my child now. I put it under the blood. Let's Let's get moving. I have a plan for you. They could, the children of Israel could have been saying, well, God, you know, uh, we just want to wander in the wilderness some more. We just want to eat manna and, and have the water from the rock and, and go where you tell us. And God, it's pretty hard life, but, it, you know, we're used to it. And we tend to do that with God so often. God, I'm kind of used to my, my sin nature. I've gotten, I've gotten used to it. You know, it's not, it's bad, but maybe not that bad. And God's saying, no, it stinks. <laughs> It's, it's a dead, rotting corpse, and it stinks. You know, get, it, get, it, get it in the grave and, and get rid of it and live the life that I've given you. And we get used to it. We get used to it. We get used to the stinking, flesh life that we're living and the struggles that we have. And we complain and gripe to God about how things aren't good, and yet we don't want to do what it takes to get rid of the past and just let go of it because God's forgiven it. He's forgiven us of all our past sins, all our past mistakes. If you got saved later in life and you messed up everything there was to do with raising your children, God has forgiven that. And he's going to put the right people in their past to bring them to him or at least give them the opportunity to bring them to him. Because you can't go back and undo the past. It's, it's gone. So just say, God... I've repented, I ask you for your forgiveness, and it's under the blood, and live in the victory of the now. God is a God of victories. We're going to see here in this book, he's a God of victory, and he wants us to live victorious lives, but it is on his terms. The spirit-filled life that is accepting who we are in Christ. And we've talked about this, the 51 things that happen to us when we're saved. You know, and if you weren't there in that class, eventually we'll get around to teaching it again, or, I've, or I can give you the piece of paper that lists it for you. But 51 things happen to you at the moment that you're saved. 
You're adopted into his family. You are declared perfect. You are given the Holy Spirit. You're, you're made a child of God. You're made a king. You're made, a, you're, you're made perfect. You're made righteous. You're made holy. All these things that we need to start understanding. This is who I am. And quit living in the past of dead life. And the more we can understand who we are, Satan comes along and says, well, you know, all you are is a lousy, rotten sinner. You know what, Satan? You're absolutely right. But God has paid for my sins, and I am a victorious child of God, living with the king in victory, not in defeat. Well, we spent, we, spent, we spent an entire year going through the 51 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. So we'll, we'll print it out and give it to each one of you again. And someday again, we'll do it again. Yeah, the 50, 51 weeks that we did it in. We did, we did one thing each week that happens to you, so uh, it was a long series, but it was very valuable because we really need to know who we are in Christ because we tend to know who we are in the flesh and how miserable and awful we are, and yet God says, you're my child, and he's not going to claim us if we're miserable and awful. You are righteous because you are, in, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are forgiven because of the blood of Christ being shed for you. He has declared us to be perfect. He has justified us. Do you realize that your position before God is perfect? All right? When God looks at you and if, you're, and if you are his child, he goes, that's my perfect child. And, you know, it sounds kind of strange, but if you've worked with kids long enough, Every parent will tell you their child is perfect. Believe me, you'll tell them how bad their kid behaved in Sunday school or in, or in the classroom, and they'll go, not my kid. <laughs> now, there's a handful that will, under, will acknowledge that their kid is probably a holy terror like all the other kids in there. But most of the parents will tell you, not my kid. My kid's an angel. Now, they know their kid's not an angel. But you know, God tells Satan the same thing. My child is perfect. What do you mean my child's not perfect, Satan? You want to you try them? Go ahead, you know, try them. Give them some tests. Let's, let's, let's see if they're going live, to live to be who I say they are. And unfortunately, we oftentimes we fail, but <laughs> and then God covers us with, this, with his blood and brings us back again. And eventually we start being successful. But you know, God looks at us and he says, this is my perfect child. Why? because he's clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. The sins went under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he clothes us with, he strips off our garments of, of self-righteousness rags and puts on Jesus Christ. So that when he looks at us, he sees perfection. When we stand before him in heaven, what will he see? Jesus Christ. He's going to see Jesus' righteousness. And you know what? That is such a wonderful thing that that's all he's going to see because I don't want him to see my filthy rags. When, they, when the people stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're going to stand in front before God in their own righteousness, which is going to be filthy rags. And God's going to say, depart from me. I don't know you. You've got the wrong clothes on. God has a, God has a, a dress code for heaven. It's the righteousness of Christ. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ, you've got the right clothes on. There's, there's a parable, the, the parable of, the, 
of the wedding where, where he goes up to the man and goes, why aren't you wearing the garments that I provided for you? You know, the man wanted to wear his own clothes. And he said, send him out to outer darkness. God has a dress code, and it's Jesus Christ's righteousness. No matter how good we think we may be, it's not good enough. It needs Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so important for us to understand who we are in Christ. Because without that knowledge, we will live defeated lives. We will be defeated when we don't understand who we are in Christ. We're sons and daughters. We're a royal priesthood. We're king. We're, we're, we're royalty. We're forgiven. We are righteous. We are perfect in his sight. And so when Satan comes and knocks on your door to tell you about how bad you've been, remind him what Jesus has done and what his destination is. You, know, you are absolutely right. You have a definite fact, Satan. I used to be that way, but the truth is I am justified, blood-bought, perfect in God's sight, and you never will be. You're headed to hell. I'm headed to heaven. Don't let Satan convince you that you're worthless because you're not. If you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are not worthless. You are God's precious child, precious possession, a peculiar possession, as it says in the King James, which means a precious possession that is treasured and guarded. So we dwell on that. We uh, kind of follow that. Not accepting that. Most of the time, that most people live a defeated life because they dwell on the past and not in who they are in Christ. If you're dwelling on who you are in Christ, you're going to be victorious because you're going to start seeing yourself as victorious because my strength is not in me, it's in God. It comes from not knowing it or just not, just not having uh, Both. For many Christians, it's not knowing it because they haven't studied the Word of God and, and, and looked up what, and understood who they are in Christ. For the other half of the people, probably, it is not believing it. They're not convinced. They're not willing to accept what God says about you. And this is why every time I talk about it, I'm going, we need to understand what God says and believe it and live it. Whether it makes sense to us or not doesn't really matter. It's, if God says it, it's true. When God says, I'm his child and I'm perfect because he has justified me, whether I believe it or not, I am perfect and I am, and I am justified because he says so. Now, granted, that's in the courts of heaven, but you know, that's how God sees us because, again, remember, God is outside of time and he has already declared us as perfect, so as far as he's concerned, we are perfect. When Jesus, before the world was created, told the Father, we're going to create man, they're going to sin, I will go and be slain for them and redeem them. As soon as he said, I will go, man was redeemed. We haven't even been created yet. And God has already redeemed man who he has not created yet because Jesus said, I will do it. And because he is God, it was an absolute statement that he would do it. And that's hard to believe, but we were redeemed before we were created. We were redeemed before Adam and Eve were created, and before they fell, we were already redeemed. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world. 
very powerful truth. We've got to start understanding who we are in Christ. But in our, how I say our world, is that when we say perfect, the only per- person that's perfect is Jesus, because we're not perfect in our mind. We know we're not perfect, but how God thinks we are, that it's like, no, we're not perfect. You're perfect. We're perfect through Christ, being clothed in Christ because he has crucified our flesh. And the more we start believing this, the more we will live the life like him. The more we focus on what God says about us and what God says about the word and we start living what he says, the more we will live like he says we are. And this is something that, that is so true. Again, we were talking on the way up here, and, you know, and I made a comment that I tend to th- try to think the best of people as much as possible. And if you know me, you'll find that I tend to do that. I want to think the best of people. Now, does that mean I don't believe that certain people are, are going to cheat us and do things wrong? No, I know that many will do that. But I'm going to try to think the best of people. If something's missing, I don't immediately jump to, well, I think so-and-so took it because they were here, they were here yesterday and it disappeared. You know, I'm going, okay, God, you know, and usually my think is, well, I sure hope they needed it more than we did because now we've got to replace it. And then usually it'll show up. It got misplaced. You know? it's, are we thinking the way God thinks about people? Are we acting toward people the way God thinks about them? Are we acting toward ourselves the way God thinks about us? The more we practice doing that, the easier it becomes, and the better we, off we are, and then will God take us to the next step, and then the next step. You know, Job, when God gave the testimony of Job, he said, Job is a man that eschews or hates evil. That was the testimony he gave Satan of Job. Yeah, you know, this is a man who hates evil. And then you go, well, he only, he only trusts you because you put a hedge around him. God goes, okay, you can, you know, and we know the story, he gets to do all kinds of things to Job. And Job suffers quite hard, and, and his, his belief system is challenged because God allowed that to happen. Most of the time, we spend a lot of the time griping and complaining about our life. You know, lots of people do. You know, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have this, I don't have that. The people of Israel murmured and complained about everything. What, what are you doing when you murmur and complain? You're basically saying, God, you're not doing enough for me. God, you're not doing what I think you should be doing for me, and it's just not enough. What, what you are doing is not enough. Can you picture, think about this in the future, if you are complaining about something, you basically are telling God, God, you're not in control. You don't, you're not doing enough. That may change how you're going to look at things. A whole lot. God, I may not understand it, but you're in control, and I'm going to be willing to take whatever you send my way. You may not like what he sends your way. It may, it may be crucifying your flesh just a little bit and testing you. But you know what? God's got a plan. And he's good, and he's good all the time. When God says that we're perfect, and we say that we're, that nobody's perfect, that we're human, that's fear. But if you put all your belief in Jesus and God, there is no fear. You overcome your fear, doubts, and worries. But when we say that we're human, nobody's perfect, you're putting that fear out, and that's not good. Right? 
I wouldn't necessarily say it's fear, it's distrust, disbelief. Satan will come at you with a lot of facts. And the facts are that we're terrible people. No matter how good we are, the fact is we're terrible. The truth is we're forgiven and that we're clothed in Christ. Quit believing the facts that Satan throws out at you because they're really lies because they're not part of the truth. And we need to start seeing and acting on truth. What God says is true. Whether my life lines up with it or not is another story altogether. Whether somebody else's life <laughs> lines up with it is another story because God says, I have declared each of my children perfect. And you know, if we start seeing each other and looking for the, the truth in them, we may have a whole other opinion about people. It has been said that if you look for the good in somebody, you'll find it. Contrary-wise, if you look for the bad in somebody, you can, you can find bad. I have met so many people, they've been looking for a church for 20 or 30 years. And I ask them, well, you haven't found a good church? Well, no, I, there's something wrong with every church I've been to. I go, quit looking for the wrong. Find, something, find out what's good in those churches. There is no perfect church, and if there was, you can't join it because you're not perfect. Now, and that's just the way we need to look at it. There, there's no perfect church out there because it's all made of sinners. And even if you manage to find a perfect church, you're a sinner and you, you can't join it. It would be imperfect as soon as you became a member of it. So you find a per, an imperfect church that you can, spend, that you can fit in with and, and, and be a part of, be a part of that imperfect church. Because if there's a teacher in there that's teaching you, eventually you'll be made more and more perfect as you, as you get taught. And you'll learn. And so here we are. It says, God will not fail you nor forsake you. And verse, verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for, for unto this people shall you divide an inheritance of the land, which I swear to your fathers to give them. I love this. We're going to see this. In just these first ten verses, we see this, uh, nine verses, we see this statement. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. You know, how many times do we as Christians live a life of wimpiness and fear? Wimpiness and fear. God says, I want you to go talk to, oh no, God can't talk to that person. You know, uh, you know I'm going to run the other way because I'm just a wimpy weakling. I, I have no strength in you, God. And God says, be strong and of good courage. God is going to keep asking us to do things that are going to challenge us to, to stand in him. It's not our own strength he's telling us to stand up in. But he is telling us to have a little bit of guts and a little bit of courage and go do something for him. And quit being wimpy, wimpy, fearful people. Because for the most part, that's what we are. God, I can't, I can't stand in front of this group and share the gospel because... I'm just a weak, wimpy person who has nothing to believe in. And God says, be strong and be of good courage. God, I can't do, I can't stand up for you in this situation because they might think I'm strange. I'm a, a weak, wimpy person. And God says, be strong and of good courage. No, I wouldn't use wimpy on me. I would just use like, um, I would, no, that I would say the wrong thing and I don't want to, God says, be strong and have good courage and that he's going to speak through you. We can, 
make excuses all over the place to, for why we won't be strong and of good courage. And I'm just telling you the opposite of it is to be weak and wimpy. God, I can't do what you want because I'm just a weak, wimpy person who doesn't have enough faith in you to stand up for you. Okay? So we want to, you know, we want to say, God, I want to stand up for you. I want, I want to be strong, and I'm being strong in Christ. I, it goes back to Philippians 4 that we talked about Sunday. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying be strong in your own strength, Joshua. He says, I am your strength. He's already promised, I am giving you victory. I am giving you this land. I will not fail you. You will divide this land amongst all the people because I'm your strength and I'm your victor. That leads us back to who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. <laughs> Everything fits back to who are we in Christ. The more I understand who I am in Christ and live in who I am in Christ, the more victorious I will be because I'm no longer trying to say, I have to do anything. It is all Christ. I am crucified. He lives. I am perfect because God says I'm perfect because I am in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I am crucified. It all comes back to the very truth of who are we in Christ. I do have to admit, like, when I do say a couple things, I don't really say it. It's the Spirit speaking yeah, through the you. The Spirit is speaking through me, and then I've got, like, that after it's done, what did I just say? Oh, I've been there. People have asked me at times when I've said something in a Bible study, can you repeat that? And I go, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me speaking it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and now it's wonderful because I go just we'll get, you know listen to the listen to the the message online or we'll get you a copy of it. But I would tell them I did this really good to this person at my shop, but then they, what did you say? I said I don't remember. <laughs> but how I said it, it was really good. But you think I could repeat it now? Yeah, that's that's God speaking through you. All right, verse seven. Only be you strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all things according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or the left that you may prosper wherever you go or be successful. And again, he's saying be strong and very courageous in this case. But again, it is in who we are in Christ. We cannot live in spiritual victory and prosperity without living in Christ. Because otherwise, we're building our life on wood, hay, and stubble, on a foundation of sand that is going to wash away at the first storm. Be courageous, be strong in Christ. Know who you are and start believing it. Start believing who you are in Christ. That is where the victory comes from. Otherwise, we are totally defeated and we deserve to be defeated because in our flesh, we are nothing. And this is what he said. And then verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and you shall have good success. How do we make our way prosperous and have good success? How do we have victory? We meditate. We meditate on the word. Meditate. And that... You know, the, the world system says meditate is, you know, concentrate on your belly button and say, the, you know, say the same word, you know, a hundred million times, you know. That really is what the world says is meditation. Empty your mind of all thoughts so you open your mind to the demonic world. 
God says, concentrate completely on my word. Fill your mind with my word, and your, my word will keep you. You know, we meditate, we, we concentrate, we speak it, we repeat God's word, that you may observe to do all according to all that is written therein. Do you realize the more you fill yourself with God's thoughts, the more you will start acting like God? It's, it's a real simple truth. You, what you concentrate in, on is what you become. So if you're concentrating and meditating on God's word, you're going to become like God. If you're concentrating on your soap operas, you will find yourself becoming more like the world of the soap opera. If you're concentrating on nothing but work, or work is the forefront of your mind, everything about you will be about work. You become what you meditate on. And God is saying, meditate on me. Meditate on my word. And then it will make you prosperous and successful. And you shall have good success. And that literally is wisdom and comprehension. Have you ever wanted to have wisdom and comprehension in situations? God's word is the answer. It is wonderful when you're talking to somebody and the Holy Spirit starts talking to, to you, especially when they're trying to deceive you about something. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, hey, there's a, there's a problem here. You know, I've had that happen a couple of times. I had a guy that wanted to speak in front of the church, and I'm going, why do you want to speak in front of the church? And, you know, and everything in me said, don't let him. And then at the very end, he, he wanted to attack the church members because they weren't acting like Christians. And I'm going, no, you're not going to do that in my church. You know, it's just not going to happen. You know, do we have people that don't act like Christians? Yes. But you're not going to come along and try to attack them from outside. I don't even want to come in and attack my, my people from the pulpit because they're not acting like Christians. I'm going to teach God's word. And I might, if it's serious enough, take them aside and talk to them. But no, we're not talking to them from the front of the church and trying to, to, to really tear somebody apart because that's not God's way. That's right. Reproof, though, it has to be done with a loving attitude and correctly. There is a time for reproof, but it's got to be done correctly. And then the last verse we want to look for, have I not commanded you? I've given you instruction. Be strong and of good courage. <laughs> be not afraid, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why are we to be strong and courageous? Because God is with us. Always. And he sees us as perfect, and he's living through us. And because he is with us, he's living through us. And if we're meditating on the word, and we're having our flesh crucified, you're talking about being victorious. You know, technically, we can be perfect. In reality, we probably never will be. Because most of us will never spend all of our time meditating on God's word and living according to his word all the time. But you know, it is possible. If we spend all our time meditating on his word and living it out and letting him crucify our flesh, we could walk in a perfect lifestyle and then we could be Enoch and go to heaven. Or Elijah and go to heaven right away. We don't have to wait till death. We don't have to wait till the rapture. He'd say, okay, you're, you and I are so close. Come on up. Probably won't happen until, you know, for most of us. But it can if we just say, God, I want to believe your word. God, I want you to live through me. I want your word to be true. 
I want to live the victorious life that you say I'm capable of. That's what we're studying in the book of Joshua. Victory after victory after victory because they were walking with God, accepting who God said they were, and he said, you're going to be victorious, and they were. We can be victorious if we will just live in who we are in Christ. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are and how much you love us. We ask that you go with us today. Help us to be strong and courageous. Help us to not be wimpy and weak and that you will guide us and lead us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.